What is up, Asymmetry? Got a big one for you today. We've been saying for a long time that we needed to go visit Dan Robinson at Alandon Gardens, and finally the team and I were able to make the trip to Bremerton and spend some time inside of his garden, spend some time with his family, and spend some time with Dan one-on-one really trying to dissect his very unique perspective and approach horticulturally to the concept of stasis in bonsai and aesthetically to representing the concept of ancient. Now, I want to just put a disclaimer on this, that Dan is a very unique individual that kind of blazed his own trail in the bonsai practice and deviated from the traditional model significantly. He's going to say some things that stray far from the way we approach bonsai at Mirai. But there's interest in this. There's a different pursuit in this. There's a different goal to Dan Robinson's actions with bonsai. And inside of that, there's something to be learned. There's something to stimulate thought. There's something to present possibilities. There are pieces to Dan's approach that could be considered and potentially added to create more value or enhance what it is we're already doing inside of the art form. This is the role of an artist to expand the way we think and get us outside of the box. And there is probably no other single individual in the bonsai practice that sits on the outskirts of town, as Dan says himself, in the action of bonsai. We invite you all to sit back, relax, take it with a grain of salt, but allow yourself to just think about your intention in bonsai as Dan dissects and breaks down how he's approached this art form over a very prolonged and illustrious career. Enjoy. The one thing that just occurs to me about all this stuff Mm -hmm. is that I've just kind of just done it, you know, Frank's my way. Yeah. And it just seems to work. And so I have this huge collection and I've got this great garden. I've got all this shit that I've, picked up where I went and went to the trouble and now I've got it all yeah and I can show it to other people as a methodology for a modicum of success Uh, one way to do it it's not the only way you can do it multitude of ways it's like the goddamn soil in your pot I mean they'll grow in the Willamette Valley gunk and they'll grow in pumice rock or they'll grow in Akadama whatever Mm mm-hmm but what's going to work best for you is the deal. Walter Paul, you know, as a, he wrote the foreword to your book. Yeah, yeah. I and, remember him when he was a young guy over in Italy. <laughs> I, see, that's the thing is you Same have exposure my, uh, to all of this at the beginning. Who was the demonstrator at, at Valavanis's? I remember him when he was a teenage kid and he showed up at this thing. Uh, Marco, you mean? Yeah, Marco in Vernizzi. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> But 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 it's like Walter Paul in the way that, the way that Walter handles deciduous trees and and people you know consider it controversial and my whole thing has been but Walter's not trying to do, the same thing everybody else is yeah. doing. There's no there's no, there's no way. Yeah. There's no one way. No. And that's where y- your, your concept of stasis, has always really captivated me because, uh, because it is it is highly. Uh, it is highly manageable if trees yeah, are not you growing. Kidding. Yeah, but I, mean, I, I, didn't, I hadn't pruned that hinoki out there for five years. Mm-hmm. The one that I trained to look like the grizzly giant, or right. my conception of that. Yeah. 
and and you can get away. You can't do it with pines. Yeah. Because if you lose the foliage, you got to graft or bring the branch back in there to sure. get some. Yeah. But hanokis are just slow anyhow, and so it's really easy to let them be effusive. No matter what, they're not going to be very effusive. Right. It's not. It's not in there. It's, it's not in much their a year anyhow. Yeah. Right? Totally. Yeah. But to sparse it out is is the art and. And to take it back to the last little bit of green when you do prune it, yeah, on that sprig, we're all overcommitted. Sure. I mean, I always thought, God, it'd be wonderful to have three trees, and boy, I could make those things. <laughs> but be yeah, but you wouldn't be entertained with three trees. <laughs> no, yeah, you'd be, be bored to death. I'd be done with them. <laughs> you'd be bored to death. Yeah, energy levels is a thing that has just kind of eluded me, and I've always enjoyed hearing you talk about, you know. Um, single flush trees and double flush trees and I, uh, it never really occurred to me. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, okay, that, okay. oh, mm. at least on the pines. Sure, yeah, absolutely. You know. For me, when I went to Japan, I, I just didn't have a clear idea of, of how bonsai worked. You know, sure. like I was doing my best. I, I mean, I met you in college before I ever went to Japan. Mm at uh, the Golden State Bonsai Convention in Sacramento in 2002, maybe? When yeah. Mitsuya was Harry, there? Harry, um, Harry somebody tried to draw a picture of the tree that I and had designed it for me in his picture, you know, mm -hmm. and of course it didn't turn out to look at all like that, but <laughs> these guys that presume, uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> presume things uh, uh, not safe to do if you're going to put it in writing yeah not harry but who's the guy that harry harrow harry Hurrow, you know yeah. and of course harry harrow was a, a juniper collector he's sure. not a bonsai artist yeah. I, mean, I mean i looked at all those guys and looked at how their things turned out okay if you're a great collector it's like randy white i mean he's got it he's yeah. got it figured out how to bring it back alive yeah you yeah know? he's good at it that's the deal he's good and at it. um but taking a piece of material and having it achieve its eminence, whatever that is, is always varied. And people are going to have different abilities along those lines. Mm -hmm. and, and without exception, you're, the trees you do are beautiful and a great presentation. Mm. I just disagree. Mm -hmm. But that's all has to do with the crown formation or the branch pattern in there, those kinds of things. Sure. Rather than the color, hey, hey, this is what you want. I just would have made this branch really be gnarly in yeah. there because I want to look into it, get away from this helmet, mm -hmm. which I see on all the trees. Everybody's into helmets. Yeah. And it's really just that they haven't gone any further than the deliberate notion of continual pinching which leads to huge density, mm -hmm. and then they don't sparse it out mm -hmm. because it's almost like the judging says, that, well, if it isn't beautifully dense, you haven't spent enough time on it. Right. Because that's the judgment value. That, sure. that indicates great care and dedication, sure. and it's true, Yeah. but there's another side that says, I want it to be like a deciduous tree, a conifer, mm -hmm. so I can see all of that, which is what I do with the, with the great black pine. Yeah. An individual perception of value. And so, but I think, that's, I think that's the liberation that we have in North America, you know, in the bonsai practice, because we don't have a homogenous governing body of, you know, what is supposed to be an art form. But I think... Well, and thank goodness. 
in a yeah, way. Yeah, originally <laughs> I thought, gosh, a professionals organization, you know, when you come home from Japan, I think everybody's probably guilty of it. You don't really know what it looks like to try and do bonsai outside of the guidance of of what you've got of your ma yeah. of your master or your reference, yeah. but you know, your reference, what what was your reference? Like how You know what there it is. Yeah. Why did you why did you start doing bonsai though? Why did you want to look at big trees and then suddenly make that in smaller trees? Well, because I was involved in a business that involved collecting interesting tree forms for the landscaping business. Mm -hmm. And I began finding naturally stunted ones and realized, God, that's what those Japanese guys put in the pots. Uh-huh. So your initial uh, reference was still Japanese bonsai though. Well, yeah, uh -huh. bonsai anyhow. Yeah. But not knowing anything about it particularly, because yeah. it was way back in the 50s. And, um, but somewhere I'd heard that they put trees in pots and they have different shapes, I guess. I mean, I'm ex ex expanding on what I knew then right now. Sure. The trouble is that you've learned all this shit, and so it just kind of comes you out. You can't go backwards. Yeah, it's hard to yeah. know what your thought process was then. I just remember seeing these deer and elk browsed vine maples up in the Olympic Mountains over here where I was collecting big ones, which were mostly vertical, but gnarly branches on them, full sun, mm -hmm. and collecting those for landscaping. I was carrying these trees from this one place down this game trail and I came to a wider area and just kind of set the tree down to rest and looked around and all the way around the edge of this clearing were these deer browse, gnarly vine maple, hollowed out, battered stumps mm. covered with little twigs and covered with buds. Mm. I mean, there weren't any leaves at this time of year, but I yeah. remember going over and looking at those and said, that's what those Japanese guys collect and put in right. the pots. Right. Which expanded my interest profoundly just at that moment because I, distantly in here I had some, you know, that they put trees in pots and they looked for interesting shapes and, mm -hmm. and here I was seeing the real thing and they were old and the oldness of them and the gnarliness just consumed me. Mm. And so pretty soon as I'm carrying trees down, I'm looking around for stunted gnarly trees. I found an old yew tree up there, which I transplanted and died. I mean, this was way back in the year, in the mid fifties when I started college at the university in 57. And so um, I just kind of got, well, and then I got the um, Brooklyn Botanic Handbook, mm -hmm. two handbooks, one for bonsai and one advanced bonsai. And you know, they're just a paperback thing. Yeah. And I remember looking in right away to see the collecting of wild things and they had a tiny little paragraph in right. there about it. And right. I said, well, I know more about that than that. I mean, you know, you got to get these white roots and yeah. <laughs> things yeah. like that. But anyhow, so as a kid, we lived in Hollywood and North Hollywood and, and I, um, I love Thompson seedless grapes. They'd come in these big bundles and I used to eat all the grapes off and then I'd look at the, what was the remnant that was left and here's this gnarly tree type shape of right. dead branches. You know, just. Interesting. And I remember uh, once driving from Chicago to, to Topeka, Kansas for a, for a Christmas deal or something, family was down there and I I, the inside of the car had fogged up. We were in a Nash Rambler or something like that way back. And 
53 or something like that, drawing a, a picture in the, in the moisture like an old oak tree. Uh, so oak trees have always kind of consumed my enthusiasm. And I, you know, I was enamored over the vertical giant trees here because um, that's what was here. And as a kid, you know, I spent summers down here in Grapeview, which is 20 miles south of here on the beach and endless driftwood, gnarly root things that washed up and big logs from the logging. Everything was transported by water early on. And yeah. so there was all this drift out there. Plus there was the stuff that fell off banks and everything else. So there is hardly any out there now, you know, because yeah. people clean it up and yeah. scour the beaches. I mean, the beaches were buried under slanting trees of varying degrees of prostration. So these guys are down covered with barnacles. And then the next level is right along the tide level. And then these are up a little bit more. And then, right. and I remember walking along those beaches and climbing over all these logs and you never really saw the beach. It was, and now they've cleared it all off so it's nice and sunny and pea gravel. Yeah. And, yeah, well, there you go. And so trying to even find a place like that on Puget Sound here. I mean, they've, they've allowed people to build houses on sandbars with septic tanks. Hello, Earth. Where mm -hmm. do they think that stuff's going? Yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, what's the brain trust? Yeah. Oh, so anyhow, like I said, when I got on that train going down to my duty station in Korea and looking out the window, and every pine tree was informal, upright pines all along the railroad track. And you never saw that in Western Washington yeah. until you get up high enough to run into snow loading. Right. You know, so. Right. So, and you don't know why that was that way in South Korea? I don't. It must be a congenital thing because all of the little forests, I don't know that they're little, but second, well, they've got to be. Occasionally you'd see a giant pine that, of course, would look like a giant oak because mm -hmm. that's how all of them wind up. Mm. You know, the great, uh, the best of the ponderosa pines and rocky things are gnarly, huge canopied things. And yeah. that was, West west of Miami, over on the west side, mm -hmm. all those great pines, probably loblollies or long needles, whatever or they are, like that. Yeah, all of them have huge gnarly limbs festooned with orchids mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But they all look like giant oak trees, right? To me, rather than than this. Yeah, and so. And then to get into those swamps up there, and here's pine trees growing along the ground because it's too acidic, mm -hmm. producing weak wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, but, but I, I, you know, it's almost like everything led to the same point for you because, uh, because it all came down to this, like... Um, well, just infatuation. It, it yeah, all. but well, but but the infatuation was, it, it was, it was the, uh, it seems to me it was the impossibility of it. You know, the, the improbability of it or the... Well, it could be that that's what would be so seductive. I mean, it's like that one I showed you down there where the bark is growing through the knot hole mm -hmm. back inside the hollow trunk. Right. It's just un, un, uh, unworldly. Yeah, I, I've never seen that before wow. on a, in a bonsai, honestly. Look at that. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because I have seen that before in China hmm. on some of their old elms. Oh, yeah. And uh, okay. some of their uh, 
bonsai garden. We I've been to China probably four or five times, and mm -hmm. we led tours over there, and you know. Diane did all that kind of stuff, and I was carrying baggage, but that's okay. I, I <laughs> you added, were there. I added some there. baggage to it. There you go. And uh, and I saw that on some of those Chinese elms, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure whether they were artificially carved out or whether it just ultimately failed, because some wood is pretty undurable if there's a you know a dead face on the tree. It may just rot away, and then if the outside's okay, it could. Yeah could swell back, but to find a natural one like that is just kind of a kiss, you know? Yeah. And um, I, I feel like, yeah, it's almost like may, maybe, uh, you know, the Penjing model, I feel like is like we look at wild trees more and more, you know, it's a progression. It's been a progression for me. I, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. be, because I because I did grow up in the Rockies and I when I went to Japan, I went to Japan to learn Mr. Kimura's technique. I didn't sure. necessarily want to take on <laughs> The bonsai, the bonsai aesthetic, you know, but, yeah. but it's tough to not be institutionalized to a degree when you're an, oh, an indentured yeah. servant. And you got it. Got and it. How do you evolve? That's after the, that? and that's, that's the question where, where you're in. Yeah. But, and, and it's but like you me, got I'm there still evolving with planting trees more than ever. If I can plant them in a rock. Yeah. And so, uh, but my design things are ostensibly kind of the same. I want, you know, my, I'm, I'm, I was accused once of being unprincipled, and so I decided I'd have some principles. So I thought up, you know, four of them, and and I ascribed to that. It's the Robinson addendum. It's, uh, you know, all trees <laughs> deserve crooked, gnarly branches. All trees deserve dead wood, but it should be carved and refined so it's value added. Mm -hmm. You don't want any bullseye pruning scars. That's number three. And wire should be everywhere except where you don't use it. Mm. And so, oh, oh, that's it? Well, I can expand endlessly on those, yeah, of course. those concepts, but it's down to that kind of a thing. Um, I always considered that most bonsai stuff is, is crafty. You know, branches should depart the trunk, come down, and then level out. And that's only because I understand how trees expand and bury branches that have this shape. And when you found it, the trunk was out to here and they all leave there and it looks more better. Right, right. And so it's just kind of an extrapolation from the visual observation of things and growing up luckily at a time when there were a few of those around yeah. to see. And, and I, was, I was just back in Raleigh at the Triangle Bonsai Club back there for five days two or three weeks ago. And they just all got done with the, the spring ritual of repotting. I said, well, good luck to you guys. You know, count the dead or dying a little later. <laughs> You'll know by June, I told them. <laughs> June's when things show up. You know, you can transplant all winter long. Sure. And it'll die in June. <laughs> if, it, if, it's gonna, if it's gonna die, <laughs> yeah. the summer is generally where it yeah, gets tested. That, yeah, that's when it's, uh, the demise is evident. <laughs> Anyhow, they wanted me back there to uh, to show them how I carve and what I do with that stuff, and um, so it was great fun. I just spent had two workshops and a demo, and worked on the Yopon Holly. That was just fabulous, hmm. big old errant thing, and just reduced it down to this stuff. And it, you know, the trunk 
this big, and of course they hadn't uncovered the Nabari, and it's there. Yeah. Just lump, get these get these little roots off of here. Look at this, you know. And, yeah. And but it was great to uh, to motivate and to free up, maybe to set free the notion that deadwood is really okay on deciduous trees. Yeah, it's there. Mm -hmm. So why is it wrong? Yeah. I mean, where does that come from? So much of the regimen was written by this guy, was a, a GI who after the war was still in Japan, he was walking around and saw these guys out on the street making little bonsai trees. And he said, I had to write a how-to book. And let's see, what would I put in there? Well, I'll look at this guy's trees and, okay, he's got a first branch. Okay, all bonsai should have a first branch. And then, oh, then there's a second one and it's slightly higher and opposite. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, second, third. Oh, and then you do it again. And then it goes up to a triangle, perfect. Is this actually what, how, how these conventions started? I have no idea, I but I can't imagine that they came. I've never from quite any understood other it. Source because so much of it is just kind of you mean you got to do this? Yeah. And got to do that when you're looking at Mother Nature. But it's an art, for God's sake. It has nothing to do necessarily with Mother Nature. So this is the, this is the conundrum in a way is that all of it is good. Mm -hmm. You're working with plants and having them thrive and grow, and they're producing oxygen, for God's sake. Yeah. Which is really nice to have. It's good. Some of that. All positive. You know? And it's all real close, and you're a lot better off breathing this oxygen than the stuff that's downstairs in the basement in New York place where everybody else has breathed it before you did. Right. And it came from the exhaust pipe of a truck Yeah. to boot. So, like I said, I, I look at all of the various expressions and think, oh, it's laudable, it's fabulous. Do it. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many people that do nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, then you start getting into the politics of our society and how wonderful everything is, and boy, it's scary. So, you know, you don't want to <laughs> touch too much on that. Yeah. I mean, I don't go collecting in the front range anymore because it's all been burned. Yep. And all the little trees go, of course. Right. And um, here's the U.S. government deciding that what we need to do to save the f uh, to put the fires out. I mean, this is the blindness. To put the fires out, we've got to go in and clear all the underbrush and young trees out of the woods around the world so that all these dumb people can still go out and start fires in the woods. Yeah. You know, today we walked through Landon and every tree has had a story you know yeah. and, I, and I understand that and from all my own experiences from out there. yeah yeah and, and yeah. getting to sit here and look at the white pine which is a total anomaly yeah. in the middle of a body of water for a western white pine <laughs> yeah. to be existing there there's no reason that that tree should live there and like yeah. and yet this is your setting yeah yeah this is your everyday bizarros but it's that, but it's it's not it's not that bizarre. This would be this would have been normal, right? At at yeah. one, at some point, this would have been normal. But now this is a unique situation. This is a unique scenario. Maybe that's illustrative of the change that yeah, you're speaking to. Maybe yeah. you yeah. know. That's true. Ira, can I have one of those red ales? Red. Yeah, this is where red ales. 
ridge top. You don't you don't drink beer? No. Uh, did you ever I drink don't even beer? Drink coffee. You don't drink coffee? No. It's a killer. Are you really? It's caffeine. Do you are are you are you just just I water, just, huh? It tastes like shit. Why you know, <laughs> I drink pog, which is a fruit juice, kind of mixture of mango and another thing and another thing and that's good and I drink water. Uh-huh. Have you always been that way? Yeah. I never drank pop, although I would drink, um, when I drive to, uh, to go collecting, um, I'll drink a Pepsi, one of those big ones, yeah. with sweet and low in there to get rid of the carbonation. And I won't blink for 800 miles. Wow. I mean, boy. So that, you know, just kind of it's go juice. being functional. The go juice. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the caffeine in there, I guess. I don't like anything that tastes bad. Okay, so I, I hate hot well, I, food. I don't like anything that tastes bad either, um, but this doesn't you know, taste anything bad. That's got, uh, this doesn't taste bad though. That's the well, yeah, that's but debatable. you had to like it. Huh? You had to learn to like it. And the same thing with smoking hmm. or coffee. I mean, the first time you tasted it, it was just kind of, and you drink this with enthusiasm? Yeah. Yeah, how, mm -hmm. how, but how do you learn to like, you know, like the first time I ate sushi, I was like, ah, I'm not into that. And then for me, I started thinking about it a little bit and I was like, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. And then, and then it was like, actually, maybe I kind of like that. And it just sort of naturally morphed. And I speak to sushi specifically because it morphed inside of my head and I was very mm -hmm. observant of my shift yeah. to going from disliking the first time I ate sushi to wanting to eat it the second time. Yeah. You know, that well, was a very I, I odd like transition. It, uh... I didn't like the idea of eating it raw for some reason. I'm not sure that there was a taste that bothered me because mm -hmm. it's just kind of fish. I mean, uh, the thing that kills me is the green stuff you put on it that burns you to eat it. So I'm, I don't like anything hot in food. Uh huh. I like food to be warm, but I mean the, the yeah. spices. You don't like so the wasabi, I'm kind of an huh? anti-spicy kind of guy. I like my steaks rare and a lot of salt on them. Uh -huh. I love sugar. I love milk chocolate. Dark chocolate's the enemy. <laughs> yes. And yes, I is. like it's walnuts better than, uh, than almonds. But you don't seem to find them in chocolate anymore. And so from a food standpoint, I can eat just about anything. There's just some things that I don't like it hot, like hot chili and stuff yeah. that burns going down. I can't yeah. understand that in people. And it's the same thing with drinking coffee or smoking a cigarette. Think about the first cigarette you tried. I tried one in Chicago, I guess, and I almost fell in front of an elevated train. And uh, then I tried to learn how to smoke when I was working Eastern Oregon Forest Service before my freshman year in college. And I bought a pack of cigarettes. I had it rolled up in my T-shirt up here, you know, mm -hmm. Marlboro, man. I think I got a couple puffs and I thought, God, this is really stupid, isn't it? Why do that? Yeah. I remember when you had to drink beer, when you'd go to a party over at Lake Chelan and everybody's out there and I, the best I could do is uh, carry Kool-Aid with me and I'd put it in the beer so that it would sweeten it up and, mm -hmm. and but it just was this machination trying to make it so that I could kind of fit in and I just decided I just didn't have to fit in anymore and so. When did you decide that, that you didn't have to fit in anymore? Well, it was probably a long, long time ago. Back, um, 
back in the late 60s, probably. Hmm. Probably earlier than that when it came to bonsai, just because it seemed so stiltified, whatever that means, up on stilts, you know, exonerated, uh, higher, exalted. You got to do it this way, and I, yeah, out of I, I, almost uh, too 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 good too, for you, out of your reach, out yeah, of your understanding. Yeah. I felt that way too. It was very inaccessible in the beginning, yeah. and it was actually, you know, it was going back to Walter Paul or, or speaking to you. I mean, it was really people like you when I when I sat down at the at the banquet table and you were at the same table. Or I was looking for a table, and you—I had spoken with you earlier at the GSBF event. You—you mm -hmm. you, you said pull up a chair. You know, it was like uh, those moments were really pivotal for me because bonsai was becoming accessible from, I guess, the few people that weren't so hyped on maintaining this perception of what this formality was mm -hmm. supposed to be and behavior well, you had to pay all reverence your dues for years reverence <laughs> to you know and that's and it's really interesting for me to talk with you about this because then I went to Japan and uh, apprenticed myself to a master and that's the uh, ultimate and, and degree that's what you do yeah. that's the ultimate degree of commitment you know but I almost feel like in coming back from Japan having spent time with Mr. Kimura, who himself was, I think, very rejecting of the formality in the beginning, beginning of his career. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I th it's interesting. I mean, his first book on all that trunk shortening and all that kind of exciting stuff. Yeah. That just, wow. Carving, guys, splitting, yeah. bending, yeah. yeah, really dissecting trees physiologically yeah. and, and, they, and, and surviving, you know, I mean, truly sculpting. Well, yeah, the shaving down of the sapwood down to the minimum so we can bend this thing and have the bark on it and yeah. shorten those trunks. It was, yeah, it was, it was amazing. Stuff. But, but you were right there. See, this is the thing, though, is you were right there with him. I mean, 84 Anaheim. Well, I, I you're, you're out there with a chainsaw. I, <laughs> that, that got yeah. you kicked out of California. I know it. It was, it was what I kind of did, you know, just yeah. because I was driven with the dream of something that I'd seen in nature. I see these trees that are just, there's nothing left to them except just the outer bark and the, a little bit of cadmium, a little bit of sapwood, mm -hmm. and it's all doing well. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of deliberately imposing that kind of value on a bigger tree and, and um, Realizing that's a lot of um, excision of wood. How can I do it expeditiously? That little Toro chainsaw just really ate that stuff up. And mm -hmm. putting a handle on the end. I remember seeing in one of the books a picture of Kimura uh, carving with a chainsaw, but he had a whole bunch of brackets around the engine up here holding it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I rigged up one of my handles and I sent it to him via someone who was going to visit in Japan. And, uh -huh. and I never heard anything from him, but I thought, you know, this might give him the idea. Just put it on the tip. It gives you all this control. Right. You can do anything you want. Right. It changes everything. And the first handle that I, uh, that I developed, I still got it in here. And it was cut off a table leg at Melba Tucker's house huh. before that thing in Anaheim. And I had been working with the saw a little bit, but not being able to control it very good on hard wood. And, and uh, her husband said, well, let's rig up a handle. We hear the hole in the bar out here. And, 
and we cut this thing off and affixed it to the <laughs> yeah, chainsaw. Yeah, fixed it to the chainsaw, and boy, it gave me all that. <laughs> what What was it like? I mean, we were talking about the Fresno crew and talking about Ray Themey and Harold Latimer and John Roll and John Pittenger and, and John Pittenger and and you yeah, you know you you asked me how I knew them I yeah, I knew yeah. them because in college uh, at at the same Sacramento convention that I met you at uh, I was sleeping in the back of my truck and a guy from Visalia Anthony Galanti uh, had an extra bed and said mm -hmm. if you want to take a shower and sleep in a bed instead of your truck, you're welcome to yeah. share my room. So, you know, that, that was the beginning of going to Visalia. And then I kind of started meeting those guys in the Fresno GSBF convention where yeah. Shinji Suzuki was and Harry Harau styled the big California juniper. Yeah, that's that's in front of yeah. Collection North. Like that was kind of the beginning of meeting John Roll and, and Howard and some of those guys. But, you know, I was really coming along as as sort of another generation that was trying to understand what are you guys about what are the, what are you about how you know like John Nock is talking about this stuff and I see this happening from Japan you know and Mr. Kimura's doing this but yeah, I don't see all of that uh, varied uh, information feeding in and you try you try to make sense of it I tried to make sense of yeah. it see but there was more input for me to try and like process through what what is this bonsai and when I hear you say I knew there, there was this Japanese art form where these guys were putting these trees in containers and you're up in the mountains, but you didn't have all of the clutter of everybody having tried to make well, sense of this right. foreign thing. Yeah. So you just kind of took it and said, oh, I make I trees that look oh, like trees. Okay, here they are. That's very, so, that's very hard for me to be able to digest because you really did, you know, your style is your interpretation almost pure and, I would say, unobscured but then it became something that was so controversial that you really had to put your flag in the ground and yeah. say, but this is how I do it because I'm not trying to do the same thing you're doing. And you said that earlier than anybody yeah. else did from my perspective. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was reasonably straightforward about the way I felt about what I was doing things. And, uh, and, and the, the deal down in Fresno, I had... Um, there was a bonsai convention in Pasadena in the early 70s, maybe 1970, I can't remember those things, but um, I went down to that and just as a voyeur, I don't know that I got in any of the programs. They, had a, they were at a hotel and there was a great a swimming pool and I had my daughter with me, so I'm my wife and daughter and of course they're out in the swimming pool and I'm trying to kind of get into the spirit of this first bonsai convention <laughs> ever. And I probably met maybe John Pittenger or one of the guys from Fresno. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to him enough that I had been doing quite a bit of carving on some trees and stuff. And so they were kind of curious about that. And of course, nobody was doing that. And Kimura hadn't started doing it or there were any of that stuff. And so, um, they invited me to come down to Fresno or at least to stop in there sometime when I'm going to L.A. for something. And so in the real early 70s, I, I met up with these four guys, all of whom were reasonably established bonsai practitioners. Right. 
And my big dream at the time was that I had this um, big stump type thing that was still alive and I wanted to hollow the whole thing out and, and create, an, an, to solve the absence of taper, was to create internal taper. Mm -hmm. So that the trunk would taper up this way and, and this way. And I, I was convinced that it would give you the same impact, but you had this other thing. And I had to use a chainsaw to hollow it out because it was just this giant piece of wood. Sure. And, um, and they were all kind of enthused over this, this idea of, of using some power tools to carve because no one had, you know, probably people messing around with a Dremel, but I didn't even have a die grinder then. Right. I went from the Dremel to the chainsaw just because it was so expeditious. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, I had this, I hadn't rigged that handle on it yet, but it was just a little um, Toro chainsaw, electric one, $55 or something like that for this little inline, so it didn't have a side mount motor, and it was just kind of this little thing, and you could just, mm. really worked good. It jumped around, but it kind of led the way to creativity with its own irrational uh, breaches of my control. Yeah. So it, oh, ah, that looks pretty good. Look at that, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, I was victimized by the power of it all, but it just was expeditious and that, boy, that was great. And so after that, I, I think those guys even suggested maybe trying something like a die grinder because uh, somebody there was using a, a router mm -hmm. to do some carving, you know? <laughs> Well, you're holding on to this machine. Here's this table. I can't, uh, and can't even imagine that. And here, you know, and, but it's throwing wood. Yeah. Which the Dremel didn't, didn't never throws wood. Sure. It just burns because the bit gets dull in five minutes. Right. So you're just SOL. So I think that was John Pittenger. Now, John Pittenger was a carpenter, a house builder. He ultimately moved to Texas, and I ran into him many years later down there at a pro. I took Walter Paul's place when he had that heart attack. Yeah. So I went on his Texas tour, and I ran into John Pittenger down in there, which was 30 years after running into him in Fresno. And he still wasn't doing much with bonsai, but he still had the passion for it. I yeah. mean, there's so many people like that. They have one tree, you know, and they just love the whole thing and love watching you do this stuff. Well, how are you doing? Well, I, I'm doing okay. I mean, I haven't progressed any, but I'm happy with it. And, and, and love to think about it, enjoy yeah, it, be a yeah, part of it. Love to watch other people practice the art and do what's going on. So the, the demonstration thing has always been a powerful influence in the whole agenda of, of getting people enthused. And uh, to me, the whole thing was how can I make this thing be endlessly fun? Mm. And so getting rid of a lot of the problems and so I've got some problems. I've got problems with copper wire because it's the enemy of bonsai. It's stronger than aluminum, mm -hmm. but it's the enemy. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Nobody anneals it right. Uh. You should be able to take a number 10 wire that's properly annealed and go like this and it should wrap around your finger. And it isn't, mm -hmm. it springs. I'm sorry, you're SOL. Mm -hmm. You can't put it on tight enough can't put it on tight enough, you can't make a gnarly branch. But aluminum, you can. 
So why beat yourself up? Just use aluminum. It's a temporary training aid for God's sake. But how much have you heard over the years that the real pros, they want you to use copper wire. Mm -hmm. That's gonna give you a better tree? Bullshit. Mm -hmm. What gives you a better tree is a great design and the ability to achieve the goal. What's terrible is for someone to have a goal and can't do it because the tool fails. And so I, I understood that. So I went after tools that really delivered the product, whether it's a die grinder instead of a Dremel, whether it's a little electric chainsaw, put a handle on it, then you can make it do anything you want. And so, you know, so the copper wire's an enemy. The concave cutter is an enemy. It leaves a goddamn depressed pruning scale scar, mm -hmm. which means you get to wait a long time to produce the flawless trunk that it should lead to after an eternity of waiting. And then you'll have a flawless <laughs> trunk on your tree. And I thought, what a fabulous thing. <laughs> Except I like those other kind of trunks mm. that are replete with the essence of life in the wilderness, the adversity, overcoming all of that abuse and still hanging in there. Yeah, That's what excites me. So the concave cutter's the enemy. I'm excluding the award that somebody devised out of the concave cutter award. I'm not sure what that's all about, but anyhow, the concave cutter's the enemy because it leaves a depressed leaf scales, a, a pruning scar. I don't want any bullseyes. That's one of my principles. One of your principles. And so, and it cuts off potential gins, especially in the hands of a novice. You turn this young tree and pretty soon it's just a bare trunk with all these pruning scars. Right. Said, well, um, this could have been an interesting feature on here if you would have, if you would have. So that and, uh, and copper wire are my two nemesis, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and yet they're I fundamental, right? I feel, like you can, I feel like you can be victorious in not engaging with them. <laughs> Anyhow, it's, it's just kind of, there just are these things yeah. that we've all been saddled with. Cause, and and the, the rule that uh, I remembered, Ben Oakey, what a guy, anyhow, saying that uh, gin is inappropriate uh, on deciduous trees. Uh, huh? I'm, I'm, I've just driven through the Tehachapi's and looked at the great oaks up there with, with the huge scars where limbs had fallen off and here's this hollow space in here with a great old horned owl sitting in there looking at me mm. and it's inappropriate to have dead wood on deciduous trees who is this guy and where does he come from yeah who, who dreamed up that one right right yeah and so there's just a whole bunch there's a whole litany of these things that impinge on people's ability to uh, maybe um dream of possibilities but also to achieve the dream that they have. How can I make this tree really be fabulous? Well, for me, this is how you might do that. Mm -hmm. And you gotta have the tools. And if you really wanna have really gnarly branches, you gotta double wire them. Well, here's another one. When you put the wire on, if you're gonna put a second wire, run it side by side. And then, don't give me that. Why would you run side by side? How about splitting the gap so it doesn't break there? 
Hello, Earth. Why do we run them side by side? Because aesthetically it looks better. It's a goddamn temporary training aid. Who cares how it looks? Mm. You want to save the branch. You want to control the branch, make it do what you want it to do. And so, okay, just split the gap with the second wire. That gives you twice the coverage. You still got the strength. And any stronger, you just have more opportunity to deliver the gnarly branch, which is a feature of ancient trees, which is my dream. Right. So all of it kind of feeds into how I mess with this stuff. And, and I pass that on to clients and new people. And I say, and it's just fun to do this stuff. And if you use aluminum wire, you can take it off and use it again. Yeah. <laughs> rather than cutting it into little pieces and putting sure. it in a bag like John Knocker used to do. I used to watch him down at his house and he had these bags of copper wire clips. Cause he, of course, you know, one of the things that's wonderful about the concave cutter is it's a great wire cutter for in, in grown into the branch <laughs> wire sure. that you can't see anymore. So it gets buried because it, you lose its color. Whereas aluminum wire turns white, so you know it's on there. It's easy to take it off. Right, right. But again, it facilitates achieving what you may be trying to do. And that's what tools can do, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a cell phone or whether it's a car or a die grinder, it's all a tool. And I just, just kind of feel that way about stuff. Why did you build a land and gardens? Well, we were having um, lots of people coming out here. To your home? Yeah. Okay. Because they had, wanted to see your I trees. trees everywhere. Uh-huh. And we had that bonsai convention in Seattle in 84. And there were, you know, 400 people came out here with buses. And I built a walkway, you know, and, and it was great. It all worked. It just kind of, I felt hamstrung. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't really, even though I've done some really neat landscaping here, I've got the... I brought all these rocks in. This was a no-bank waterfront. And so I built up this promontory so that you'd have a pea gravel beach with a pine out on a thing and all this kind of stuff. And, and I liked all that, but I, I just had uh, this um, unrequited uh, energy to get more and more trees. And I had a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd go to... Colorado and spend two weeks down there with Larry Jackal and come back with a pickup truck load of great ponderosa pines, a lot of them for landscaping. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm covering the whole spectrum of my enthusiasm from bonsai, which isn't a moneymaker, to landscape trees. And so wanting all of that and gnarly wood, that big juniper snag, yeah. that was on top of a pile of ponderosas. So I put that on the very top because it was more precious. <laughs> than the ponderosas because right. they'll take the abuse. Yeah. But that guy just, I watched him in the rearview mirror all the way home, <laughs> kind of <laughs> rocking back and forth, taking a little bark off here and there, but nah, it didn't bother that ponderosa. No, no, nothing too damaging. It didn't hurt, yeah. the, didn't hurt the snag. So I, I just um, uh, had this, uh, I'd retired. I tried to get the job at Weyerhaeuser you know, because they were just uh, warehouse everyone was going to build this garden as a gift to the state of Washington to celebrate the bicentennial. They developed this uh, idea of a bonsai garden and they were looking for a curator. 
And so I was one of the participants. And even though I'm living here, they contacted me by phone. And of course, we had this guy named Richard Piacentini, who was a bonsai guy maybe out of New York City, a little kind of a guy that had been in charge of the selection process. Hmm. And I met with him and um, he was a real timid kind of guy. I mean, you know, I, I came into that meeting as a potential leader of this bonsai extravaganza that was gonna go on with a whole litany of ideas that what I was gonna try to do for the Weyerhaeuser company, which was gonna turn bonsai into a worldwide adventure and here were trees from the Weyerhaeuser company, the tree growing company, and trees were from all over the world coming in here and we were gonna have uh, buses taking these trees out to the schools in the Seattle area, educating kids about the art of bonsai. And so I came in with this, <laughs> this huge agenda for this poor little guy from New York City to pick up on. And I'm sure he just kind of made a deposit and just kind of backed out on me <laughs> and went for scared, Dave DeGroat. Dave DeGroat, who's this nice enough guy who played in an orchestra down in New Orleans someplace and probably grew some bonsai trees and, right. and figured he'd be uh, easier to deal with because he might be diplomatic and might not have a whole agenda mm. surrounding the potential for the Weyerhaeuser company to grow. So I, and you know, in my heart of hearts, I said, and I had several uh, Weyerhaeuser clients that I pruned for and did landscaping for, mm. and so they were all enthused, and um, I just got, I was out of there. So anyhow, I just kind of, well, uh, okay, I guess, well, I'll build my own garden. I was close to retiring from the fire department. How many years do you serve I put in 20, 25 mm -hmm. for the city of Bremerton. One day off, two days off. But the day on, half of the day, I'm working on bonsai trees in there, in this ideal situation without any distraction other than the horn would blow every once in a while and you'd go on a run. Right. But uh, trying to do things down at the garden when people are there, I'm much better kind of alone on certain things. I'm in okay in front of an audience, you know, but I just got to, anyhow. So I just, um, we started looking for land and I knew about this thing because I'd been driving by it for years out there, this old garbage dump and, and uh, contacted the city and, and this was about 1990, about, I retired in 91 and so I probably didn't do anything about till 91 in terms of contacting the city because I'd been refused prior to that for this Weyerhaeuser thing. And, um, and so they said, well, as long as you um, have something to do with education and or gardening, you can lease the land. It's, um, you know, it's very nominal, you know, $300 a month or something. And mm. it's 1,500 feet of waterfront. Yeah. But they can't do anything with it because mm -hmm. it's a landfill. Right. And so it's disappearing and the tide is coming in around the world. And so inevitability is that um, that contorted Dawn Redwood is gonna be on the brink with exposed roots in the salt water right. after a while and that's where it goes. So anyhow, so we just uh, bought into that. And I'm so glad 
Hmm. Because the whole thing about working for a company with a different agenda, I'm not sure that I'd be persuasive or whether I'd spend all my time dealing with a bunch of loggers who might buy into the deal. I mean, I have no idea. Yeah, or with a bunch of bureaucrats yeah. that don't want to, yeah. don't want to potentially. Because I don't have to deal with anybody yeah. at the garden. And so my will is my way. And it's been quite wonderful. I thought, boy, the trouble with dealing with, uh, with other people is um, someone is always going to ask you, well, why do you want to do that, Dan? And I don't have an answer. I mean, why do you want to bring that giant rock in there? Why do I want to bring, you know, all of that kind of, yeah. I mean, it, I've been dealing with clients forever. And so I know what that's all about right. as a landscape designer. Luckily now, I, they hire me for what I do. And so right. they all want a gnarly piece of wood. and <laughs> Big rocks. Yeah, big rocks. Crazy trees. Gnarly trees. Yeah, and, sure. And yeah. it's fabulous. Yeah. So I, I've kind of passed that all, all on to William, my son, and so he's, you know, of the same ilk, and he went down last summer and got some great wood down here north of Aberdeen, down on the, on the Pacific coast here, but back in the woods. That's where that great stuff comes from, from old cedar trunks that are from they, when they logged, and then they yeah. come in and log again and tear this stuff up and put it in piles. Sure. Try to burn it. It's too wet to burn, so it just... There it is. So. Interesting. And you feel like, so almost, you know, serendipity kind of prevailed for you because you, you potentially could have become the curator of the Pacific Rim collection at one point, and that might have completely, maybe it wouldn't have changed your trajectory. Maybe it would have been utterly, uh, utterly frustrating. Maybe you would yeah. have been able to have an impact and have greatly expanded the exposure yeah. to bonsai. You'll never know, but you yeah. created a land in gardens. Which has done it on its own. Which has done its own. I mean, yeah. you really have created a destination. I mean, there were a lot of people there today, and I'm assuming that's pretty normal. Oh, yeah, and you see it on weekends and summertime, and we have tour boats come into Bremerton and come over with buses. Yeah. That's a new kind of a thing. It's, it's always been kind of a mixed blessing. Um, you know, we raised the price from eight, eight to $10 and no one's troubled over that. We were at $8 for years, you know? Yeah. And so it's not really, it's mostly the gift shop that makes great money. Mm -hmm. But you know, we'll get 30, 50 or 60 people a, a day through there. And it's a little, I don't enjoy it as much as being down there with just a couple people where I can actually work on stuff because I love to stop and talk to people. Yeah. And so you're just kind of unproductive. Right. You know, I mean, you're productive in a proselytory standpoint, but not from getting anything done. And yeah. God knows there's stuff to do uh, at every turn. So you have a lot to do. A, you have a lot to do. Yeah. It's like this bark thing. I mean, I spent, you know, a yard of bark isn't a lot of bark, but carrying it up in between those trees and pulling all the weeds out first and bending down and putting getting them in the right place. By the end of the day, I'm weary. And I think, you know, it's, it's a 2,200 pounds for God's sake with a little bucket, but cumulatively it just kind of makes me tired. But I always wake up the next morning uh, feeling great. <laughs> awesome. So it does kind of wearify me, but whereas pruning doesn't. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I spend 
well, I'll, I'll put nine or 10 hour days of pruning on some of these extensive trees. And uh, it's, you know, you don't work up a sweat. You're, you're cold if you don't do it the right time of year because you're not working hard enough. Right. You know, you're doing this. Well, okay, you're stretching and all that's good and got great stomach muscles from <laughs> sure. this kind of position. Yeah, but, uh, awkward asymm yeah. Uh, yeah, asymmetric but, um, poses. Yeah, you don't get fatigued. and so. I, I kind of enjoy getting fatigued because I used to um, do all the landscaping and that was rock and gravel and trees and all that. So William mostly does that stuff and I let him just do the heavy stuff. I figure, why not? You know, I, I'm busy making it look good. Yeah. You know, and he can bring this stuff over in a wheelbarrow and doesn't seem to mind it. I mean, that guy is so strong. He's, you know, there's these, um, side rails on his big boom truck that are uh, five quarter plywood, you know, two feet wide and eight feet long with posts and, and it's up here, you know, and I, I grab that and climb up in, but he can take this and lift it out of the slots. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and I stick a crowbar in here and pry up this one and put a block and pry this sure, one up. Sure, sure. <clears throat> One of those kind of deals, but uh, the functional strength of yeah. youth. I taught your crew here how to lift today, so they'll never hurt their back. Oh, that's good. I told them make sure you look up when you come up. That's all you got to remember. Look up when you come up. Yeah. And that transfers it all to right here. Needs to do all the work, and they won't do much work because you probably haven't been doing squats. But once you do those, and then it relieves your back. So. Are you pruning off of some sort of concept or are you just in the moment making decisions that feel right? Well, I'm, I'm making the decisions, but there's a, a fundamental rule that anything, anything that's linear is the enemy. So straight is bad mm -hmm. because it's juvenile and nobody likes juvenile trees. Right. Even though we all get them, because that's what you get. Mm -hmm. The lace leaves are all these linear shoots, and so prune it properly, you prune everything back to the first set of buds, and then it's going to fork. And then it grows again, and you prune it back, and it forks again, and after a while it becomes forking beautiful, and it's more better. So linear is the enemy. And if there's anything that I find that's, that's um, wrong about um, the big canopies on the pines and these big helmets is that they're full of linear branches in there completing the crown. Mm -hmm. I said, who cares about completing the crown? Get rid of the linear branch. Make it a gnarly branch that feeds the crown and it's more better. Yeah. And so, you know, I've relayed that to people all the time. You know, it's easy to prune your trees. Just get rid of the linear things. And well, how do you do that? Well, you prune it back to some place where it's going to dichotomize or change direction. And you do that over and over, and then you get branches that do this. And it's fabulous, mm -hmm. as opposed to this, yeah. which is what nature wants to do. It's called apical energy. And when the roots are close, there's a suffusion of water Interesting. So close roots are the enemy and gnarly ones 
are the good guys and ancient ones are better yet because it's such a long pipeline, the water can't get up. And so you get stasis. How much of your, how much of your forestry background contributes to your bonsai approach, would you say? Nothing. Nothing. Except tree ID. Okay, because you had told me one time, not told me, the panel discussion at the Natives Exhibition at the Pacific Bonsai Museum, okay. you, you, you made a statement and you said, listen, in forestry we define an ancient tree by a dead top. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, you know, as a, as a concept to back into the discussion of how do you describe ancient, because I, I think everybody tries to make sense of what is ancient, you know, this nebulous know. term yeah. to reference a, some unknown what life. What is an ancient, yeah. A, a age of some uh, unknown yeah. entity, right? And we're saying ancient, but you said, you know, that's, the, that's sort of a, a quantifier of ancient. It's the beginning of, yeah. right? And I thought, oh, oh, okay, so forestry, you know, so I started looking into forestry descriptions and whatnot after that, and I really didn't see anything, and I thought, I wonder how much of that has contributed. And I thought, well, maybe Dan's forestry experience is what took you into these remote places and started to present you with these ideas of these, you know, random forms. No, the, um, that particular reference came from Dr. Brockman, who was the author of the dendrology books for forestry schools, who was the professor at the University of Washington when I was there. Oh, okay. And his definition of an old growth tree was a conspicuous absence of taper, a dead or flattened top, and thick bark. <laughs> and you think about that in relation to bonsai, and of course, the conspicuous absence of taper Hmm, how does that relate to uh, these um, uh, maples with these exaggerated yeah. Mount Fuji trunks right. and stuff? Yeah. And so, well, there's that. But um, that was all, and I just remembered that as his definition. And of course, he had written these books, which everybody poured over. They were kind of a, a dark reddish color dendrology book and full of uh, ID on all the methodology, the stomates and all this different stuff right. on each tree and its range and where you put it. And he had written the books. And he, uh, he loved me in the class because I was a, a tree form identifier. And so I knew him from a distance. I didn't have to count the stomates or or you know all this other stuff right. where the other forestry students were down there with their magnifying glasses and we'd go out around campus every day i mean our class was field observations and he'd pointed a tree down there and and we all had these little tablets and we'd write down what it is and why and he'd point at these things and i'd just write it down and then just hand it to him mm. you know and after a while he said you know robinson you're just like i was I just knew what trees looked like yeah. and knew most of them from their form, the way their branch patterns are or anything else. And uh, so that was endearing, you know, I, I enjoyed that guy. And then he had made this pronouncement on old growth trees, which I wasn't particularly cued into, but I was aware of them because I grew up, uh, my grandfather's place, there was this giant fir way back in the woods it just towered up and they'd logged everything off in the 1850s and here was this monster 
back there and had a dead snag top on it that kind of meandered around. And, <laughs> and um, so I, I've just had that kind of background in this thing that um, fed my enthusiasm for, for tree ID. And of course, as a freshman in college, I had collected the, the, the seeds off of um, a Port Orford cedar, one of those cones. And I was living with my grandmother and over in this the is, university. This and, is this. And I, yeah. And it, she put them above the sink and three little trees came up in there. And, and I ultimately took them down to my grandfather's place in Grapeview and hmm. planted them in the ground and they kind of grew and stepped on it. And, and it wasn't a bonsai, <laughs> uh, you know, for, forever. It grew, we well, stepped you, on it. You saw the uh, the bonsai that was my first one when yeah. I bought that from a nursery as a reasonably mature mugo pine, which is about the same time as I was growing this from seed, but uh -huh. it took a long time from seed to <laughs> amount to anything. The but, mugo's uh, impressive though, it's impressive. Well. It's old. What's amazing is to have all of these trees that I started with 65 years ago yeah. in the garden, which there's probably 25 or 30 of them that I've had for 60 years. And that's unfathomable actually. And well, I know because everybody loses them, but everybody does the bad thing. They all are into the concept of root pruning. <laughs> Hello, and it kills trees. If you want to kill a tree, it's cut tough, the roots it's, off. It's tough, to, it's tough to argue with when you have, you know, a lot of trees that are 60 plus years. And let me just say this, your concept of stasis, because that's a tough thing to keep a tree from thriving. You know, I mean, I that's, a, that's a, that, there's a, a security blanket with a tree growing vigorously that you feel like you're doing the right thing. I remember hearing someplace that the Japanese um, support the whole uh, root pruning thing because they prefer to have the trees on the juvenile side of life rather than something else. And the juvenile side means short roots. So you get the water up there, mm -hmm. which means root pruning. Mm -hmm. Concurrent with that though is how do you really root prune trees? And 99% of the people in the US take it out of the pot and cut an inch off of the outside where all the white root tips are, plunk it back in real fast because they don't want to expose those roots, right? You know, it's a danger thing. And they cut off all the live roots. Mm. And then they hope it's going to work. And I, you have no idea how many good bonsai people I've talked to and I've asked them, hey, how is that tree doing? And they said, you know, I repotted it and it died. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just, and I've had the same thing till about 35 years ago. Yeah. Then I said, why am I doing this? Considering my experience with ancient trees growing in a tight pocket where there's no more room in that pocket for root growth. And the truth of that is that the trunk is expanded because there was no more room. And so you've got this bulbous base. Yeah. Where all the product that would have gone to root growth can't get down there. Sure. And it's still doing. It isn't doing well, but it's achieved stasis. Mm -hmm. And you're, so you're willing to relinquish control of the canopy's fate as well, though. 
Yeah. You want you you're not you're not interested in the tree dying, but you're dropping well, maybe pieces, losing a branch. Losing a branch. You me, don't have. Like I said, it's that opportunity. Right. Right. You know, okay. Could you say 35 years ago you stopped repotting, but that 35 years ago the focus in bonsai or the understanding of technique may not have been what it is today? Would you say? No. You think technique was as high 35 years ago in the execution of the craft of bonsai as it is today? Well, of course, individuals make up this selective group of people that turn out great trees. Yes, yes. And everybody's got different levels of competency in that whole arena. I'm not sure how that question relates necessarily to root pruning, but um, I know that for myself, what I found is that if I can keep the tree in balance with assiduous pruning, then it doesn't lift itself out of the pot. What is assiduous pruning? Hard pruning. Hard pruning. Yeah. So you're cutting back big, strong pieces. You're hold, well, not holding giant things, but uh, the every vigorous year, tips, right? Every year, produce needles like this, and the amount of root development from tiny little needles is tiny. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't run into it with Hinokis because they produce little tiny things. But on all the pines, little growth, and then you prune it, shorten it. I just went through this guy and cut back each fan, taking the center out. Mm -hmm. So that it's just a little explosion here. Yeah. It just stands still in that pot. This makes sense to me, though. You, 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 you have, you have cracked, you have cracked the code for me on 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 stasis because, and I think there's really something important about this. I think that I think that you are, you are t tapping into something that has not been understood, and I've really wanted to understand this process because obviously coming back from Japan, when I'm looking at the approach of Dan Robinson. I'm saying that's crazy. Yeah. You know, but I, but this is what we do. What, and we've done it for 600 years. Yeah. Yeah. Or, maybe I just didn't yeah. have another reference, you well, know? Okay. Yeah. Because I was trying to figure all this so out. So what does Kamur do? What? Does he repot every two years, five years? No, three? no, but, but we'll okay. talk about that. Okay. He, he, Mr. Kamur is a beautiful middle ground mm. that, that yeah. all, that all kind of, that all explain. but coming back, you know, you were you were flying in the face of John Naka's teachings. Oh, I you know. know. I mean, I, you you were, and you talked well, this about. This is why I was excluded from California. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he and I were friends, but I wasn't invited. Right. <laughs> but but he yeah, these were his acolytes. Yeah. You know, do, protecting oh, his sure. gospel, which is he fun. Was, he was fabulous for. I mean, look at the National Collection. Yeah. He was the figurehead for the whole Chittery. Sure. Know, and fabulous. And you're well, uh, and you're brought in the money and everything. Too. I'm just a guy out in the country. Got a bunch of trees that I've been messing with, and they're all still alive. But you, but you know, so trying to figure this out, and like it was really confusing. And I remember sitting at the table of the convention, and you were talking with me about what you're talking with me about largely now, which you have maintained a very consistent 
approach to your bonsai. And yeah. I remember Cheryl Manning was sitting there and Ann Herb was sitting there mm -hmm. and, a, and a multitude of other people were sitting there yeah. and they were really, they were really challenged by what you were saying and you oh, were challenged yeah. by what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. And it was an interesting thing to observe. And I spoke with Ted Madsen after that and he said, listen, like Dan Robinson's style or not, if you want to talk about somebody who's an artist, Dan Robinson's an artist. He's, he's not doing it this way because he's following the rules. He's doing it this way because that represents what he sees a tree to be. And that really yeah. stuck with me. Yeah, and I started, a... I started thinking about that very hard, you know. And then when, mm -hmm. when, when we were on, in the panel discussion for the Natives exhibition and, and you kind of came in a little bit later. Oh, is the beer can not attractive? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I got you. Well, oh, okay. <laughs> It, but but when you know you came in a little bit later and you kind of said I've always been on the outskirts of town. Yeah. Right. I've always the kind only of safe way to do this kind of stuff. I've always been outside <laughs> of the norm or outside of the accepted trend. Yeah. But you just cracked it for me because I, I've had this curiosity the entire time. It was it, it really is at the root of coming and spending time with you and your trees is understanding this intention that you have that is not normal to the bonsai pursuit that has bred a methodology that is undeniably compelling. And you can mm -hmm. see that because people are showing up from all over the world to see your work at a land and gardens yeah. and understanding why did you do this and how did this come about? And it seems to me it does continue to come back to uh, because it is, it is just the greatest representation of your interpretation mm -hmm. and experience, experiences. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't see any other, Think you're not thinking about cultural or political connotation or context. You're no, that, that's actually tainting the whole thing, and you're not it, thinking it, about convention or tradition. That actually yeah. is exactly opposite of what yeah. you're wanting to do. It's very fascinating, Dan. Well, that's it's um, you put it quite wonderfully with an articulateness that exceeds my own. I, you know, I don't spend any time necessarily thinking about it, but. This is just kind of what roils through my brain as I look at a tree and something like that. I just, well, this is what you could do in there and it would really be nifty. <laughs>